Thank you, Terry. I think that's a good song to lead us to our text today, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. I want to invite you to turn there, Mark chapter 15, 16 through 32. I also want to welcome those who are watching us online. Um, I have been urging you to stay home at the same time as I tell you it's essential that we meet. And I realize that kind of sounds contradictory, but I hope you get the idea. It's essential that we as a church, the body of Christ, gather. But it's also essential that if you are not feeling well or if you uh, have been around somebody who has got this virus or if you're at risk here, um, you know, please, please be, be prudent, be wise, and watch online because we can connect with you that way as well. And we want to, as a church, stay connected in every way. Uh, we want to call each other and check in on one another and encourage one another. So continue to do that. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to begin by reading verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Father, we come to this part of the story that's difficult for us to read. Um, and this maybe seems like a strange season in which to come to this story. But Father, the reason, um, the greatest reason of all that we have to give thanks is because of the gift and the sacrifice made here at the cross. Open our hearts, we pray. Uh, speak to us. Um, help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I have in my pocket a brass key. Can you all see that? I tried to find the biggest key I could find in my house. It's kind of an older-fashioned looking key. Actually, this opens up my daughter May's uh, bank. Um, we have made little banks for the kids and put little locks on them so they can start saving money and learning how to manage money. And this one was kind of the fanciest of them all. But I thought I'd just use it as a little object lesson here because a key uh, releases a lock that opens a door. And I want us to think about a key today. I want us to think about the cross as being like a key. And, you know, the older-fashioned keys are much more interesting in the way that they are shaped and designed. And um, now our modern keys are just electronic, usually. <laughs> Don't have quite the same style and design. But the cross, think of it as, as, as kind of a key shaped to fit a special lock to open the most unpenetrable uh, door of all. The law of sin, of rebellion, the law of death and destruction, 
The cross unlocks this door. The cross is the key that opens and unlocks our blindness to truth. The cross is a key that opens up our hearts to, to love. It's a key that uh, leads us to eternal life. And so I want us to think of the shape of the cross as being in the shape of a key that opens a door that nothing else could open. And maybe to, to press the analogy just a little bit further, um, you know, there were a lot of people crucified on crosses in the days of the Romans, but they never opened any doors. Only Jesus had the right profile, so to speak. Only Jesus was the perfect cut to fit the lock that bound us all. And we're going to see that as we study this passage here today. And it begins with the mocking of Jesus. He's mocked here by, well, he was first mocked by Pilate. We saw that earlier. Pilate calls him the king of the Jews, and we know Pilate doesn't mean it when he says it. And now the Roman soldiers are, are mocking Jesus by dressing him up as if he were a king and putting a crown on his head as if he were a king and, 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 and making fun of him and spitting on him and saying, yeah, well, what kind of king are you? And yet he is the king, isn't he? He's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Gentiles. He is the king of kings. But he's being mocked and scorned and laughed at and, and blasphemed here because they don't believe it. We've seen in the news these past few weeks about these brutal murders in France. Um, the the uh, freedom of the press in, in nations like France and the United States allows us to, to publish things that aren't allowed to be published in some countries. So in France, when a, a, a picture of, of the prophet Muhammad is published, this creates outrage and anger. And uh, most Muslims would simply disagree and think that shouldn't be done. But some are turned to, to drastic measures of brutally murdering innocent people in France because why? They believe that their, their prophet, their leader, has been somehow blasphemed by being depicted in a picture so how different is Christianity when we understand Jesus is more than a prophet? He is God. And yet, we allow him to be pictured in every way. Not just in children's storybooks, but in, in giant paintings hanging in galleries of him being mocked, beaten, and crucified. The humiliation of Jesus isn't something we try to cover up. It isn't something we are ashamed of. It's rather the key that unlocks the door of life, eternal life. It's the key that brings about the transformation of the world. And so we look at Jesus, and when we see him, we see him there at the cross. Now, verse 21 says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Jesus is on his way now to the cross when, when he stumbles. 
And why does Mark mention this? You know, Matthew and Luke also mention that Simon of Cyrene, that he helps Jesus carry the cross. Only Mark mentions Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. And I can't say this with absolute certainty, but it is probably because Mark knows Rufus. Now, why is that? Well, remember Mark's gospel has been written to the Christians in Rome. And if you read Paul's epistle to the Romans, in chapter 16, at the very end, he says, give my greetings to Rufus. Now, Rufus was about as common a name then as it is today. And so the possibility is very high that this boy, who had just happened to be in Jerusalem that day, because they're from out of town, he's there with his father and with his brother, and he watches as his dad is standing there beside Jesus when Jesus stumbles, and, and he, he picks up Jesus' cross, and, and he carries it for him. Simon is the first person to do what Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's very likely then that Rufus, seeing this, also becomes a follower of Jesus. And it winds up in Rome all those decades later, a part of that first church that Mark would have known, that Paul knew, that Peter knew, central to what is happening as the church is born. It's an interesting insight. I, I can't prove it, but... It, um, it sure makes sense. And now verses 22 through 28. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Mark really doesn't dwell on the gory details here. There's something else he wants us to recognize. There's a very... Um, theological point in how this is described. He wants us to see the sovereignty of God at work. He wants us to see the providence of God in the midst of this darkest moment. And he does this by showing us that a thousand-year-old prophecy is being fulfilled in these moments. Psalm 22 describes it. A thousand years before, David wrote these words, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was David describing a thousand years before what is happening to Jesus here in this moment. So you might say, how could God let this happen? But God knew it would happen. It happens for a purpose. It's the key 
that needs to open the door. This is the lowest point. And as I've said before, the lowest point is also the turning point. God is not surprised by what's happening here. He knew every detail before it took place. And, and, and I just think that this is a reminder to all of us that maybe for you, when you've hit the lowest point you've ever been, remember God is not caught off guard by this or by what is happening. And you say, well, if he's not caught off guard, why doesn't he do something? And he will. He did. And he is there with you. Romans 8, 28 reminds us, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But we know it might be painful. It might involve deep loss and suffering and even death. But he will work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that's exactly what is happening even in this moment. More than ever in this moment. And the mocking continues, verses 29 through 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. You know how that goes. You just wag their head. Wagging their head, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Twice they come by him and say, come down from that cross. And we know he could. We know he could. He is fully capable. And yet he doesn't. He stays there because he knows he has a reason, a purpose. The key must be inserted into the lock. It must be turned for that door to be opened. And this is what he must do. So the cross is the key, and I hope you take that picture with you. The cross is the key in so many ways of, to, to, to unlocking the deepest mysteries, the darkest corners of, 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 of our lives. The, everything that is broken is made understood and corrected through that key. The cross, I'm going to just point out three things in particular today. First, the cross is the key to understanding truth. It's the key to understanding truth, which means that it opens a door that shines a light for all who doubt. The cross is the key to understanding truth because it opens the door that shines the light to give light to those who doubt. Now, on the surface, it seems like that can make no sense at all. If Jesus is God and here he is dying... How does that help our doubts any? It doesn't seem like a logical way to solve the deepest questions of life. But we have to accept the fact that the key to understanding truth cannot come in the way that we would expect. And if that were the case, wouldn't we have all come to an agreement on things by now? I mean, look at the world. I think it's the fallacy of our age. This idea that says if we just analyze the data sum up all the information that we have, and we'll all come to a conclusion that we can agree to. 
<laughs> How's that working out? Not too well, is it? Things just aren't that simple. You know, every intellectual movement, every philosophy, every religion, every ism represents a search, a quest, a seeking for understanding in a world that stubbornly refuses to make sense. They're all forms of arguments uh, for, for the, the perspective or the persuasion that you might come from. And, and, and we, we think that if we compile and assemble enough information and data, we can make the case persuasive. And it can sound persuasive until you hear the other side. You say, well, that sounds pretty persuasive too. Think of how boring the newspapers would be if all we had to do was analyze the data and come to the right conclusion. Where would the editorial section go? That's not how the world works, is it? That's not how we understand things. Things are more complicated than that. And it all becomes hopelessly confusing to us unless there's some sort of key to unlocking the truth. We'll be forever stuck in our subjective corners unless there's something that opens the door of understanding. And I tell you, that key is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it works in a way that maybe isn't obvious at first. But the use of this key requires faith. It does require faith. Not a blind faith, not a leap into the darkness, but a faith to, to realize that God loves us and has done something miraculous to save us from our crisis. And I'm going to give an example of what I mean by this, and I've shared this before, but I think it's so helpful. It has helped me in many ways. Um, perhaps the greatest intellectual problem of, of history, and I realize that's saying a lot, but perhaps the greatest intellectual problem of all time has been the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Why is there uh, pain and suffering in this world? Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to people who seem so innocent? And anybody who ponders the meaning of life immediately runs into this question. And if somebody is doubtful about their beliefs, often it's suffering and pain and evil that bring those doubts to the forefront. And, and so we all come up with short trying to solve this problem with some sort of logical explanation. And it's not just Christians who have wrestled with this. It's every belief system that must wrestle with this. But as Christians, we have a unique answer to this dilemma. And, and, and so we could explain it like this. We believe in God. We believe that God is all-powerful. Imagine the triangle. A triangle with three points. God is all-powerful. That's going to be our point here. God is all-loving. That's our point here. And there is pain and suffering in this world. That's our point here. we got three points on this triangle. Now, the, the skeptic, the atheist, the doubter comes at you and says, huh, well, that cannot be. You can have two, but you cannot have all three. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then how can there be pain in this world because he would obviously be the, have, 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 have taken care of that problem already. Or they would say, if God is all-powerful and there's problems in this world, he must not love us because he hasn't done anything about it. Or they would say, well, if there's really pain in this world and, and God does love us, he just isn't powerful enough to solve the problem. Sounds like a pretty compelling argument until you insert the key of the cross at the center of it all. Because at the cross, 
the all-powerful God, does the most loving thing he can do by taking upon himself the pain and the suffering of the world. Now, this is, is, is something like, obviously, we, we, we need faith to believe and to accept. But does it not put things together in a different way? God is answering the problem. He has answered it. He is answering it. And he will finally complete what he has set to do. And we trust that. The, so the key, the cross is the key to this, this understanding of the problem. But let's look at another example. The cross is the key to a, a life-changing love. The key to life-changing love. We'll move from uh, being quite so philosophical to being a little more to the heart of it. Because this key opens a door and shines a light for the brokenhearted. For those who are brokenhearted, the cross speaks to you and opens a door that once was locked. Everyone's searching for love, but counterfeits are everywhere. This sin-saturated world has us looking for love in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. But St. Augustine said that the cross is the pulpit from which God preached his love to the world. The cross is the ultimate example of God's love. It provides us with a pattern to follow in showing love to one another. It becomes the biblical example of love. John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What is love? It is sacrifice. It is giving of oneself, even to the point of one's life. Ephesians 6, 25, speaks about love within a marriage between husbands and wives. And, and, and Paul there says, husbands, love your wives. And how is this kind of love to be understood? He says, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He loved him by giving himself up for her. The cross is the key to understanding the meaning of love. The link between love and sacrifice is clear. And, and, and the cross gives us the key to a life-changing understanding of love. We have all been loved by someone who died for us. And we can all give love by laying down our lives for others. We may not literally take a bullet or jump in front of a bus, but we could daily give our lives by committing ourselves to serving and blessing others through acts of simple sacrifice. So the cross reveals to us that love often hurts, it's painful, it leaves us vulnerable to suffering. But C.S. Lewis said it well in his book, The Four Loves. He said, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, 
irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. The cross is the key to understanding love. And then finally, the cross is the key to eternal life. It is the key to eternal life. It opens the door and shines a light for those who fear death. And when we come to the cross, we come to a crossroads. We come to a point of decision. We recognize when we read what we just read here, that Jesus has died And we are presented with a a, a picture we cannot turn away from and remain indifferent. We really need to choose. Are we going to accept or are we going to reject? Are we going to receive the life that he gives or are we going to continue to walk our own path and seek to find our own way and seek our own keys to unlocking the doors that nothing can seem to get through? It's a crossroads, the cross. I heard Alistair Begg say that um, sometimes people look at the cross and think of it as a roundabout instead of a crossroads. And we know about roundabouts now, don't we? And some people get into that roundabout and they just keep going round and round and round. And isn't that how some people approach the reality of the cross? They won't make a decision. (laughs) They just keep going round and round. They're not sure what to do. And they stumble. And... So we must make a choice of what we're going to do when we realize the key has been delivered. And we realize the lock that must be opened for the door to be released, for eternal life to be found. And when we do, and when we discover that, the light comes on and our hearts break free and we understand what Christ has done. By the grace of God, we see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he didn't stay dead when he died on that cross, but he rose from the grave. He conquered death and he transforms our fear of death into a hope that is eternal as we put our trust in him. But you know, we've got to repent of our sin. It's that sin that he died for. It's our sin that put him there. We have to recognize that and we have to confess it and say, God, I am sorry and I repent and I am not going to go back. I'm getting into this. If it's a crossroads, I'm not going back again like a roundabout that would shoot you back out the way you came. I am going to choose the path that, that, that Christ has for me because the cross is the key to eternal life. Now, there are some doors in my house with locks for which I've lost the keys you have any of those doors? Now, some of them are, are easily gotten around because I just open and close them from the inside. And if I ever have to lock it, I just lock it from the inside. But are there doors in your heart that you've never been able to open? The lock is there, but the key's been lost or never found. When we've looked this morning at the doors of truth, of love, of eternal life, and maybe those doors have not yet opened in your heart, will the cross be the key that opens that door today?
And there are other doors. I've only mentioned a few. What about the door of forgiveness? It's a big one. What about the door of self-respect? Or the door of generosity? Or, or the door of courage? All these need a key. And that key is the cross of Jesus Christ. When you need to forgive somebody, look to the cross. When you need to understand who you are and what God made you to be, look to the cross. When you need to get out of yourself and find the courage to stand up in the face of hardship, look to the cross. Look at what Christ has done. Father, we come before you today thankful for the key. Thankful that a way has been made to open the darkest door. And Lord, I pray that we will each receive your grace and that we will stand at the crossroads and be compelled by your grace to follow where Christ has led. In Jesus' name we pray.